2: This episode is brought to you by Barking Irons Applejack. Applejack is back, and Barking Irons is reinventing the original American craft spirit for modern New Yorkers. Distilled upstate, then barrel-aged and bottled in Brooklyn, Barking Irons Applejack is always made from only 100% of the finest New York apples. Now on Tuesday, March 17th, you can join me, Greg from the Bowery Boys, at Housing Works Bookstore and Cafe for a New York-themed trivia night partnered with Barking Iron Spirits. And at the event, specialty New York-themed Applejack cocktails will be served. Served to those responsible drinkers 21 and over. Meet us there. Grab tickets now before they sell out at BarkingIronsSpirits.com.
3: And before we get started, we thought that we would announce something kind of special. Very exciting, Greg. Mm -hmm. We are so excited to announce that in 2020, this year, the Bowery Boys are partnering with our friends at the New York Historical Society. Throughout this year, we're going to be hosting several live events at the New York Historical Society's Museum and Library on Central Park West, bringing together our podcast subjects with the museum's exhibitions.
2: And we've already got a couple show dates lined up. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 15th, and Wednesday, June 17th.
3: Episode 310 of the Bowery Boys, 1918, the Harlem Hellfighters. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
2: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. In today's show, we're going to World War I. Following along the fighting men who were officially known as the 369th Infantry Regiment or the 15th New York National Guard, they called themselves the Rattlers, but the media and the world called them the Harlem Hellfighters.
3: These men, African-American New Yorkers, mostly from Harlem, the West Side of Manhattan, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, but from all around, they they fought on the front lines during World War I throughout 1918. Their story is is really an incredible one. It's both inspiring and in some ways shocking because as we're going to discuss, these men volunteered to fight for their country. But as it would turn out, their country couldn't exactly agree on how to use them.
2: For although they were American troops, they fought for the French because of U.S. segregation policies in the military. So this is a story about men fighting for a country that chose to treat them like second-class citizens, both legally and culturally.
3: And while about 380,000 African Americans would serve in World War One, or in the Great War, because of racial prejudice and because of the segregation that existed within the armed services, most of those men were relegated to positions as laborers, as stevedores. They weren't actually permitted to fight. But the men of this regiment, the Harlem Hellfighters, they'd spend a lot of time fighting the Germans, in fact, longer than almost any other American soldiers.
2: Now, when these men returned, they were received in New York with a -a once-in-a-lifetime showing of love and praise, a huge parade in their honor, on Monday, February 17th, 1919.
3: Actually, I thought that it would be interesting to set up the scene by flipping to an article that was published on the front page of the New York Times on February 18th, the next Mm -hmm. day, 1919, about the parade that had taken place the previous day. Fifth Avenue Cheers Negro Veterans. Men of the 369th, back from fields of valor, acclaimed by thousands, Harlem mad with joy over a return of its own. New York's Negro soldiers, bringing with them from France one of the bravest records achieved by any organization in the war, marched amidst waving flags and cheering crowds yesterday from 23rd Street and 5th Avenue to 143rd Street and Lenox Avenue. New York gave a big welcome to the 2,900 men, forming the 369th Infantry, formerly the 15th Regiment of the New York National Guard, and the 1st Veteran Regiment of New York troops to return. But
2: once the music died, and once these men returned to their daily lives, they realized in that moment that America had not
3: changed as much as they hoped. So join us as we salute the men of the 369th Infantry Regiment, the Harlem Hellfighters. Okay, Greg, so, well, I think we have a lot of territory to cover here. Oh, yeah, it's literal. L- literally, we're going to France and back. In terms of situating, are you going to briefly explain the genesis of the origins of World War I? Franz Ferdinand and all that. We're not going to
2: start there because that would be a very long show. I'll save that for the myriad of TV specials that have come out in the past few years. Instead, I will start with the United States officially declaring war on germany on april 6th 1917 officially entering the great war as it would be called on the side of the allied powers on the side of the united kingdom
3: and france so the u.s entered in 1917 Mm -hmm. and they were the allies were combating of course germany and italy um who had joined forces with austria-hungary But they had been fighting for years. Yes. uh, And actually,
2: the United States was officially neutral up to this time. Although unofficially, they were on the side of the allies. And New York City in particular was, by this point, already paralyzed by the effects of this conflict. It was the only thing people could speak about. You had New York-based bankers and businessmen like J.P. Morgan urging the U.S. to get involved for perhaps some not-so-unselfish reasons. You had German spies in New York City gathering information and leading, of course, to great distrust and prejudice towards New York's large German population. And you even had New York companies that were already working for these federal governments that were making munitions and weapons of war throughout the region.
3: The U.S. got in in 1917. The previous year, in uh, 1916, in July, saw the, the Black Tom explosion, which we did an entire show about a few years ago, in which Germans actually set off explosions on a New York island that, that held munitions for the war.
2: So even now you had New Yorkers' lives endangered before America even entered the war. So when the country finally did enter... Most Americans would eventually get on board with support and throw themselves into preparations for the war. And, you know, not to go yay home team here, but we can say confidently that most especially New Yorkers threw their weight behind this effort. Can you back that claim up? I can with a very, very powerful statistic here. Soldiers from the state of New York alone would contribute 10% of the entire American fighting force. And New York, the state of New York, would see more casualties than any other state. Over
3: 13,000 people died from New York in the conflict. And of course, that explains why we still find so many World War I monuments and memorials throughout the city throughout the state
2: Mm -hmm. but there were those though in new york and throughout the united states who thought that our country had enough on its hands that we were perhaps hypocritical in helping to spread freedom in foreign lands when many of our citizens were not being treated equally here this was an america dividing its residents by race through legal and cultural segregation
3: and if the Great War started in 1914, mm-hmm. it's kind of amazing to think just 50 years previous, mm-hmm. the U.S. had been engulfed in the Civil War Yeah, I mean, over these very issues.
2: This is an, inc- an incredible thing to consider, these two events. Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, which freed 3.5 million people from slavery in the Confederate states. Okay? That war was over in 1865. Many former slaves were still alive here now on the outset of World War I, and their sons and grandsons would soon be drafted to fight for the country.
3: And even by the onset of the war in Europe in 1914, little had really changed in many of those places since Reconstruction. Yeah, I mean, especially in the
2: South. Now, during this time, you had many black residents of southern states moving north and into the west for better jobs in industrial cities and to escape this entrenched racism in the south. This would have a profound impact in places like New York City, where the black population would almost triple between the years 1900 and 1920, so to over 150,000 African Americans in the city by 1920.
3: Which is, of course, not to suggest that the North was really a bastion of freedom and totally free of segregation. no, oh, no. There were no. lots of problems, as we've talked about, especially here in New York. Oh, yeah. I mean,
2: especially. I mean, in fact, it's one of those reasons why a neighborhood like Harlem would develop in this period, as black New Yorkers would be barred from living in other areas. By 1920, in fact, half or even most of the African-American population would live in Harlem, Plus, generally speaking, in the country at this time, you had a rise of black voices, black leaders, black activists, consolidation of African-American power. So perhaps not surprising, cynically, as be- as a result of all of this, there was naturally a downside, a new surge in racist ideology in the 1910s. Isn't this
3: the same Era that we see the, the, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation? Yeah, that came out in
2: 1915. This is a film, an early film classic, considered by many, that its release caused a firestorm. It was one of the many factors that ushered in the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. They are considered heroes in this particular movie. Meanwhile, throughout the South, you have a rise, you have an increase in lynchings, you have race riots in major cities during this period.
3: And what was the federal government doing to help things out here? Were they doing anything? Well,
2: Woodrow Wilson, who was the president here, was particularly fine with emboldening these segregationist lines and reversing any kind of integration on the federal level. His administration going as far as segregating government and phasing out the hiring of black applicants that had been, those doors had been opened in previous administrations.
3: Oh, how the pendulum swings.
2: Now... Locally here, here in New York City, where, by the way, Wilson is not particularly loved in the first place, you had black leaders and civil rights activists responding to the racial violence of the period that was happening throughout the country. But here, there was a lot of response from New York. On July 28th, 1917, thousands of African-Americans took to Fifth Avenue and In a very dramatic protest of a race riot that had taken place in East St. Louis just a few weeks before. This parade was the first time that most white New Yorkers saw so many black New Yorkers congregated in one place. These people were marching silently up Fifth Avenue, dressed all in white. Today we call this moment, we call this event the silent parade it's considered the first civil rights march and i want us to keep this in the back of our minds as we approach the story and get to the end of our story here
3: and you said that this parade the silent parade took place on july 28th 1917 Mm -hmm. that was only what four months after the u.s. had entered the war yeah And this was at a time, again, when the the U.S. military was segregated.
2: And it would have been understandable if Black Americans had little enthusiasm for fighting in a war that seemed quite abstract to many Americans. And yet, a great many saw military service as being crucial to their equality in this country. That on a national front, if black soldiers were allowed the same opportunities as white soldiers, Americans might see the hollowness of their own prejudices at this time. There were leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois who thought that the military was, that fighting for their country was one step towards racial harmony. He wrote in the pages of his newspaper, The Crisis, quote, Let us, while this war stands, forget our special grievances and close our ranks shoulder to shoulder with our white fellow citizens and the allied nations that are fighting for democracy. We make no ordinary sacrifice, but we make it gladly and willingly with our eyes lifted to the hills.
3: So he saw the the possibility that the military could be a kind of equalizing force. Yes. Right? But how could it be equalizing if these forces were segregated? You could only fight
2: in segregated units in the American military. We'll introduce you to the members of the 15th New York National Guard, the men who would become the Harlem Hellfighters. After this... On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Addiction plays hardball. He
3: would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore
0: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So pulling back just generally speaking to before the war, when we were in peacetime, Mm -hmm. how could a black New Yorker serve their country?
3: Well, up until 1913, the New York State military law actually didn't allow for African Americans to join the New York State National Guard. After lots of lobbying by prominent African-American and progressive New Yorkers, a law would finally pass in Albany in 1913 that changed that. It it called for an all-black regiment to be formed and equipped in New York City. But that would be stalled and nothing would happen until 1916, when New York's governor, Charles Whitman, finally made it happen. In 1916, he formed the All-Black Regiment. 15th New York National Guard Regiment. And he named his friend William Hayward to serve as its commander. And Hayward, we should note, was white. As were many of the officers of this particular National Guard Regiment. That's right, but not all of them. Hayward then went about setting up a recruiting center. Again, they didn't have an armory yet, so he set up a recruiting center up in Harlem out of a cigar store. That was located at 131st Street and Seventh Avenue,
2: and who joined here? We're we're not yet at a draft. These were volunteers. Mm-hmm,
3: that's right. Uh, these were men who came from all over. Actually, the majority came from Harlem because it had the largest African American population, as you mentioned. But they also came from the West Side of Manhattan. They came from around the San Juan Hill neighborhood, around today's Lincoln Center, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. But they came from other states as well, including New Jersey and Connecticut. They came from everywhere. These were young African-American men who wanted to serve their country. And was there a minimum age here? Like, how old did you have to be? You had to be 18 years old, although some would sort of fib a little on that to get accepted. And there were men up through their 30s, even into their 40s, who joined the 15th Regiment. They came from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of jobs and experiences. They were men like, for example a 25-year-old named William Henry Johnson, who had been born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. But Johnson moved to Albany, New York as a teenager. And there he had several different jobs, including uh, he was a chauffeur, he was a soda mixer, uh, and finally worked as a red-cap baggage porter at Albany's Union Station. And on June 5th, 1917, he enlisted and was assigned... To, to serve in the 15th New York Colored Infantry Regiment down in New York. Another man was named Needham Roberts. Um, his family had moved from North Carolina to New Jersey in 1890, and Needham was actually raised in Trenton. He worked as a bellhop, he worked in a drugstore, and in 1917, he was only 17, so he lied a bit on his application, he also joined the 15th Regiment. So these are just two examples of teenagers, Mm -hmm. really,
2: who are getting involved with the National Guard because they want to do something for their country.
3: They're patriotic. Yeah, and things are obviously heating up. We haven't declared war yet, but things are heating up and they want to get involved. They want to help out their country. Not all of the men who joined the 15th Regiment were, quote, everyday men. There were a couple of people who were already quite well known, including a, a very famous musician named James Reese Europe. James, or Jim Europe, was he was probably the most famous black musician in New York City at the time. Uh, he composed ragtimes. He was an extremely well-known band leader. And Jim was actually from New York? He worked in New York, but was he from here? He was born elsewhere, like the others, you know, and like so many who would wind up in the 15th Regiment and who took place or whose families took place in these great waves of migration up from the South, his family had moved from Alabama to Washington, D.C. when he was 10 years old and then up to New York in 1904 when he was in his 20s. It was then that his music career really took off and in 1910, Jim Europe formed an organization for black musicians in New York called the Clef Club. Now, Amazingly, they performed a benefit concert at Carnegie Hall in 1912 that has become legendary uh, because his cleft club orchestra, which had more than 100 members, 125 members maybe, huge. They performed a a kind of early sort of jazz, a kind of proto-jazz because jazz you know, wasn't fully formed at this point, but it was starting to break out in this new kind of like syncopated music that was coming out of the African-American community. And and it was happening here on stage at Carnegie Hall before a mixed white and black audience, you know, in, in one of the most rarefied spots in the entire city. So he was quite
2: famous. Mm -hmm. So it is a little curious then that he would join the National Guard Regiment, which I think would be a rather risky move considering his career.
3: Hayward, the colonel in charge of the regiment, recruited Jim for practical purposes too, because he needed somebody to lead the regiment's band. They would need a band while they were in Europe, but they would also need a band at the very beginning. They would be instrumental. (laughs) you will in in sort of attracting people getting people into into the recruitment center so they would perform on the corner you know drum up a lot of excitement and enthusiasm and people would want to become a part of that outfit and it wasn't just him i mean he had to put together the band as well so he he in turn then recruited some of his friends um and and sort of musical colleagues including a man named noble Sissel. Uh, who was a really talented all-around you know, musician. He could sing, he could compose and conduct. So Noble joined and then would help Jim put together his band and also serve as Jim's sergeant and uh, lead vocalist. So they're getting a lot of men recruited here. Mm-hmm. How are they training? Where are they training? Right, because they didn't have an armory. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a big deal. It's a very big deal. They basically had to make do with whatever they could get their hands on. I want to play a clip now from the 1977 documentary Men of Bronze. This film was directed by William Miles, who was a Harlem filmmaker. And we're going to be hearing from Frederick Williams, who was a member of the 15th Regiment, explaining how they trained without an armory or really any supplies.
4: Oh, wow, well, there was training with broomsticks and uh, wooden guns in Central Park, Morningside Park. Matter. Like all over here we're train all around there running around with broomsticks down, down the street
3: so did Martin sticks what the cuckoo guys again they also marched in the streets and in a way to to train you know marching in formation but also to recruit new soldiers on october 1st 1916 This 15th regiment, comprised at the time of 607 officers and men, marched down Fifth Avenue to the Union Club, where they were honored by Governor Whitman.
2: And so meanwhile here, not to speed it up a little bit, but April 6, 1917, the U.S. has officially entered World War I. Mm -hmm. So where was the 15th in all this?
3: The 15th was still recruiting. I mean, the declaration of war actually made it easier for them to recruit. You know, several of the people we already talked about Mm -hmm. joined in 1917. And they would eventually have 2,000 men recruited who they now needed to get ready for the war. You know, they had to get off the streets and into real preparations. So they headed off to a real military base called Camp Wadsworth in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which was not exactly hospitable territory for this particular regiment they were verbally and physically attacked uh, by locals and by by other white soldiers who were training there they nearly actually the 15th nearly got attacked by the alabama regiment down in fort wadsworth so colonel hayward of the 15th who was at this point concerned for the safety of his men brought them back up to new york to finish their training here
2: they're headed to war. They're training for battle. And yet they're already seeing these conflicts in their own
3: country. It's terrifying. And it also foreshadows what would happen when they would return. Mm-hmm. So let's get them out of here.
2: Yes. Um, so, and they're still the 15th New York National Guard. That's correct. Um, and so when do they finally leave the United States?
3: Well, that was kind of a debacle. Um, They tried to leave several times. The, f- the first time was in late November of 1917 but their their ship broke down as they were departing from New York Harbor. So they had to head back to the Brooklyn Navy Yard for repairs. They took off again and the ship caught fire. I'm sorry, what? And it caught fire and they had to head wow. back back to shore. They took off again on December 13th, but they collided with an oil tanker oh, offshore. No. Instead they were so disgusted and and over it that the men actually fixed the issue themselves. They didn't want to go back to shore. They just wanted to get to France. So they fixed it themselves, and finally, on December 26, 1917, the 15th New York National Guard Regiment arrived at Brest in France. And when they pulled into Brest, James Europe and his brass band struck up a really jazzy version of the Marseillaise, the French national anthem, in order to sort of greet, musically greet, the crowds who were awaiting them. But the crowds had never really heard those jazzy rhythms before. It took them a moment to even recognize their own national anthem. So hypnotized were they by this unfamiliar American music.
2: And once they got off the ship, these men would soon find themselves fighting with them, fighting
3: not for the American flag, but for the French flag. We'll get to the rest of L'histoire after this. Today's show is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp makes connecting with a professional counselor convenient, and you can get help on a schedule and a pace that works for you. And it all happens in a safe and private online environment. Secure phone and video sessions, and you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp has 3,000 US licensed therapists across all 50 states, professional counselors who are specialized in all aspects. In all kinds of fields, including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and more. And it's available worldwide. Bowery Boys listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code Bowery. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash Bowery. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash Bowery.
2: We're also sponsored by Barking Iron Spirits. Now, since America's earliest days, apples have been prized for their spirit-making qualities. Back then hard cider was a cleaner alternative to water, so our ancestors were making and drinking all the time. But cider wasn't strong enough for them, so they decided to take it one step further. And through a process known as jacking, these innovative imbibers created a spirit known as Applejack. Today, Barking Iron's spirit is reinventing this original American craft spirit for modern New Yorkers. Distilled upstate, then barrel-aged and bottled in Brooklyn, Barking Iron's Applejack is always made from only 100% of the finest New York apples. Served per tradition, at 100 proof, and aged in charred oak barrels, it's the perfect spirit for a fan of fine American Applejack or the whiskey or bourbon drinker seeking something new. A drink tough enough for New York, even if New York isn't as tough as it used to be, Applejack is back. A new responsible drinkers aged 21 or older You'll get a chance to sample some of Barking Iron's spirit and hang out with me for an excellent night of trivia. I haven't done a trivia night in quite a while, so I'm looking forward to this. I will be partnering with Barking Irons to host a New York-themed trivia night at Housing Works, one of my favorite places, Housing Works Bookstore and Cafe, on Tuesday, March 17th. That's St. Patrick's Day, by the way, so there may or may not be a little Irish New York trivia thrown in there. So grab your tickets at BarkingIronsSpirits.com and follow at Spirits on Instagram to get a sneak peek at the types of trivia questions that I'll be asking. And now, back to the show.
3: So we, we left this story with the men at the 15th sailing into Brest, disembarking, to what head off to war not
2: yet general john pershing commander of the u.s expeditionary force overseeing the whole the whole thing did not put these men into battle yet he would not not? let them fight he put them to work he put the entire 15th new york national guard here into boarded, unheated freight cars down to the town of Saint-Nazaire. There, these men who had planned and intended to do battle here in France, that was their intention, instead they were placed in cheap barracks and forced to construct a supply base in the nearby town of Montois. The men experienced for weeks hard labor constructing railroads and warehouses. Now, at this point, I think we need to bring in more voices of veterans. So I thought we'd turn again to a clip from Men of Bronze, this documentary mm-hmm. from 1977. Here's a clip of veteran Melville Miller speaking about his experiences at this work camp.
4: And we got into a camp and we stayed there about a month and a half. And we found some other black soldiers there. But they were not fighting to They were steward our regiments. The only black soldiers there were stevedores. But we were a fighting troop, according to our colonel. So if a guy's marching and his gun was a little crooked, the guy next to him would kick so straight in the car. God if you know we on on play. you know. They had pride in the company. We're the only individual regiment from any state in the old 48 states at that time ever left the shores to fight in a war under a state flag. And that's a violation
3: of something, brother. <laughs> so, so these men who were trained soldiers were working as stevedores, lugging things around. Just Laborers, yes. Laborers. That seems like an inefficient use for them at a time when they were desperately needed as soldiers.
2: And it seemed for a time that this was always going to be the intention. So one of the many books we read for this show is one called Harlem's Rattlers and the Great War by Jeffrey T. Salmons and John H. Morrow, Jr. According to Salmons, quote, memoranda between General Pershing and the chief of staff in Washington indicated that they plan to use the black regiments not as combat soldiers, but as supply troops and laborers building
3: lines of communications. So after all this, they... There was never any intention for them to actually serve as soldiers because they were African-American. Right. Not on the front lines here, not as combat troops. But there
2: was one exception to their work responsibilities here, at least for some of them. And that was, of course, James Europe and his band. They went on tour with their patriotic music and traveled to various French villages and towns around the area to drum up morale remarkably for many thousands of people this would be their very first sight of americans of course and if, and not surprisingly the types of music that they were playing would be quite revolutionary uh, for many of these people who were of course their country was under
3: siege what fabulous ambassadors i mean to give a really, first yeah. impression you know
2: and they were you know so they were pretty much right off the ship going on this sort of mini tour but finally on march 15th Europe and his and his band were ordered to return to that base camp in Saint Nazar. Because keep in mind, not only were they were they in the band, not only were they playing with the band, they were hired as instrumentalists, mm-hmm. they were also trained for battle.
3: But they weren't going to battle, they were going to Saint Nazar. Did James Europe and his band also have to go to work? Well, they yes, and they would have perhaps remained as laborers throughout the
2: entire conflict here in Western France, if not for a certain shift in the war at this time. Now, because of this, the presence of U.S. troops finally entering the war, this certainly spelled doom. For Germany, it was kind of a now a a lopsided conflict because they were unequipped to fight a two-front war, especially one that now had all these refreshed troops. So in March, Germany signed a treaty with Russia on the Eastern Front, allowing them to pour resources into their Western Front. So that's France essentially, is the Western Front, and so they ruthlessly pushed through Belgium into France. Meanwhile, back in January, okay, so France was already desperate for troops at this time. The French pleaded with Pershing to provide more men for their front line here. But that order to fight alongside or to back up the French was delayed until March.
3: March of 1918.
2: March of 1918. So that's where we're at in the story now. Now, we should mention that there are actually thousands of African-American soldiers that have come over ostensibly to fight and are instead working, and they comprise the 92nd and the 93rd Division. Now, our National Guard troops here, the ones who would become the Harlem Hellfighters, were part of the 93rd Division. Pershing then decided to offer his two allies our African-American troops. Those regiments in the 92nd Division were offered to England and were rejected. Pershing then offered the 93rd
3: Divisions, which included our 15th Regiment, yes, to France, and of course, they gratefully accepted. So our group here, the Harlem Hellfighters, had been assigned to work alongside the French, under French commanders. Yes. Were they wearing their American uniform or did they wear a French uniform? Well, it was a
2: bit of a hybrid. They were given French gas masks and firearms. In fact, actually, here's a clip of Miller describing the uniforms that they wore.
4: And we turned in all of our American equipment. That was our canteens, our rifles, our army belts and our helmets. We issued French helmets French rifles, French ammunition, French canteens, and instead of water canteen, we should French wine. And we join the fourth
3: French Army. Well the French wine is a definite perk.
4: On the plus side
3: they got wine, yes. Yes. But the equipment would also probably be different. Did they go into training? Did they have to sort of re up the training?
2: Well, I mean they almost they had no time and the war is is happening. This training needed to happen very rapidly. So in April they were sent to a village in the Argonne region of France, and about 100 kilometers from the Belgian border. And so it would be here. This is where the rest of our most of our story is taking place is in the Argonne forest where the Harlem men would see battle. In the trenches. This is a type of warfare that Americans are mostly unfamiliar with. These The Harlem men were certainly
3: unfamiliar with it. This trench warfare, perhaps we're more familiar with it this year because of the movie 1917. Yes. Which um, takes place mostly in these... Trenches
2: And gives a very good, I'd say, idea of, of like how claustrophobic and difficult it would have been to spend all of your time in those trenches. To quote from the author Walter Dean Myers, quote, "...the area between the trenches would be filled with human and animal bodies as well as the wounded. Men often lost their hearing as shell after shell burst around them. The ground shook from the impact." Perhaps there would be a dreaded gas attack, which would burn the skin and lungs.
3: And our men from Harlem were facing all of those conditions, fighting aside men who they didn't really know and with whom they couldn't even really communicate. Both sides had to make do
2: here, right? Because many of the Frenchmen couldn't speak English very well. That's true. Here's another quote from Mr. Miller describing the Argonne and the language barrier.
4: So they took our outfit, and they assigned us to this French regiment. Each man had a French soldier with him, and they were together. Now, neither one could understand any other one's language. I had a little high school French, and I could say a few words, but it meant nothing. So, when you're on post at night there with the Frenchman, and he, he always called the Germans the Bosch. Thing. And yeah, he'd say, shh, Bosh, Bosh, if you heard something. But then, sometimes he'd say, shh. And now we're all excited, kids from New York, all of a sudden, are in a war. And scared to death and everything else. So every time we saw a blade of grass move, bang, we say, no, 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 no. say, Papa, it's Papa, it means, does not, does not. So it seems that they were so quiet, but they weren't worrying about the so-called Bosh. They were hunting the wild boars that was coming through the Argonne for We knew nothing about So his friend said, like, shh, shh. Yeah, quiet. And all of a sudden, he, bang, he shoots. He kills the wild boar. See? Then they talk about barbecue later on. They'd cut out pieces and have, we had got to eat. For several months,
2: the they were now calling them the Rattlers because it was named after the patch where they had a rattlesnake on it or the Harlem Hellfighters as the world would begin to refer to them at around this time. These men would fight arm in arm with the French 16th Infantry Division in these trenches in the Argonne Forest, fending off German advances. Now, this would, of course, be many, many more men than had first gotten off the ship because, of course, men
3: cycled in and out of the front line. And would they work day after day in the trenches? I would ass- I would hope that they'd get some time off. Well, time off being
2: relative, it's 20 days in the front trenches, and then they would have 10 days in the rear of the
3: division for further training. Right. They weren't, like, heading into Paris to blow off some steam. No, oh,
2: no. Nothing like that. Even Europe and his band here. So no one was spared. It must have been so maddening living in a trench fearing for your life. If you're lucky, it becomes banal. But in fact, you know, there would be very dramatic days where your life was at risk at every single moment. In fact, very early morning on May 14th, two of the privates that you mentioned, Henry Johnson
3: and Needham Roberts, the young men who had applied one had come from Albany and the other from New Jersey. Yes, they were on lookout together that night when they were set
2: upon by between, we don't know exactly the precise number, but it's between a dozen and two dozen Germans. I'm going to let Melville Miller here describe the scene.
4: Then meet and Anita Roberts. They're holding out a certain section up in in the Argonne. And it seems that we always had listening posts, you see? Now, I'll explain if you don't know what a listening post was in that type of warfare. Now this was nothing like the Korean or Vietnam. See, when the troops were holding a trench, very activity, every night they had a post set up, maybe 200 or 300 feet from the main body in the trench. And every night they put two men out there just to listen and warn if there was going to be a sneak attack. But of course the Germans on that were doing the same thing. So this particular night, Henry Johnson, who was one of the greatest heroes, even greater than Sergeant York, which everybody knows of, were out there when these Germans attacked the Listen Post. Now approximately 24 Germans attacked. Needham Roberts got slugged almost immediately and Johnson fought them off. He shot and he cut and he swung his life around and he defeated the 24 Germans. Those they didn't wound or kill, cut out. He had 21 wounds in his body, but he refused to die. And it took Johnson and Roberts. We finally got out there in the morning and dragged their bodies back. They weren't dead and both lived through it. Sorry to say today, they're both gone. I'm sorry to say today I can say almost anything because most all of them are gone. I'm 75 years old and I was only 17 then.
2: Both of these men would receive France's highest honor for valor, the Quar de Guerre. Johnson would even be given the ominous nickname the Black Death in honor of his legendary skill here on the battlefield.
3: But how long would they stay in the trenches? For almost the entire
2: year here. unfortunately, we have some incredible perspectives into time here in the trenches. For instance, there's another private, another soldier here named Horace Pippin, who managed to keep a journal. He was an artist with drawings of his experiences in the trenches, and he continued to keep this for the entire war. Uh, The Smithsonian actually has a version of this where you can view, which I recommend everyone do. But to quote from it, Quote, the Germans would come in a plane and would deal out death to them. You would have thought the world was coming to an end. And to see those shells bursting in the night, the gas, dust and smoke
3: were terrible. Interesting that he found he found some kind of release through his art and through these sketches that he kept at the time that we can still see. I mean, it's a way to communicate those things in which you have a loss for words. And another way is music. Yes. So what was going on with Jim uh, with Europe?
2: Europe was part of a machine gun company, believe it or not. He saw constant fighting. In June, he was injured during a barrage of poisonous gas bombs. However... Jim being Jim here in the hospital he, while he was wounded he took time out of his convalescence to write music including one piece called On Patrol in No Man's Land
4: There's a men and buffer coming Look out, hear that roar There's one more And fast, but there's a very light. Nice. Don't gasp for the find you alright Don't start the bumming with those hand grenades there's a machine gun, the holy spade, alert, gas, put on your mask, adjust the correct sling and hurry up fast, drop, there's a rocket for the fight barrage, down off the ground post your can, don't stand, sweep and crawl, follow me, that's all, what do you hear, nothing near, don't no fear, all clear, that's the life of a soul when you take a patrol uh, that is
3: my kind of guy you know he's convalescing here in the summer of 1918 and he's composing really like a tin pan alley tune
2: (laughs) any reason to write music
3: it was good for the spirits of the other soldiers
2: as well now as we get here into the summer i don't have time to go through all of the engagements, including the 2nd the Champagne-Marne Defensive and the Aisne-Marne Offensive, which was actually Germany's last major push of the war. Finally, I'm going to fast forward here to September, when the regiment here, our regiment, the Harlem Hellfighters, now called the 369th Regiment, joined more than one million American soldiers on top of the French soldiers and the English soldiers. in in what is called today the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, the final pivotal push here along the entire Western Front. They, in particular, the Hellfighters, the 369th here, were specifically focusing on taking out some very strategic towns, including the town of Seychelles and its nearby Railroad Junction. Now, it's during this battle that Pippin was shot in the right arm and huddled during this altercation in a shell hole. At one point, another soldier, who was standing above him, was shot and killed, fell on top of him, pinning him into this hole for hours. Then Pippin almost drowned when a massive rainstorm filled the hole. He was rescued, but this would be an injury that would stay with him for his entire life. Such a nerve-wracking atmosphere, burning forest, the stench of battle... Such constant sounds of explosions and fire that men could barely hear themselves think, just for days on end here. During this push, many in the regiment lost their lives. Many died in the actual search from house to house in Seychelles in this village as German machine guns would be hidden on upper floors and as snipers would pick off many of these men one captain later wrote quote I have never seen so terrifying a barrage and I wonder how any of us got through but the officers and men behaved splendidly according to a French general quote the capture of Seychelles will remain a claim to fame of the 369th Infantry Regiment of the United States which displayed their audacity, energy, and valor upon the impetus of the soldiers who sacrificed without regard for themselves. And yet this final conflict here nearly wiped out the entire unit. They had a 30% casualty rate. From another book I read by Richard Slotkin called Lost Battalion, quote, The 15th New York, the 369th U.S infantry, had achieved its mission and had destroyed itself in the process. Their losses could never be replaced. When the last of them pulled out of Seychelles, they were shell-shocked, gassed, sunk to the verge of delirium. The regiment had suffered almost 1,500 casualties by this time, and it's around 850 in this final
3: offensive alone. After that horrific battle, did the did the men finally just get to c- come home? They actually
2: stuck around France, albeit not on the front lines anymore, through the armistice on November 11th, 1918. Finally, on November 26th, they became the first American troops to cross the Rhine River. They were officially relieved on December 12th, 1918, 170 members of the 369th would receive this french award of valor the croix de guerre including and to return again to our veteran melville miller
4: we spent 191 days in the front line trenches we never lost a foot of ground or a prisoner so i think that's a greater record than my medal, because my medal is unimportant i can sit here and brag all day long But the medal I got, every member of our outfit got. The entire regiment was decorated with a Croix de Guerre by the French government. I had an individual citation plus the medal. But the Croix de Guerre, the Cross of War, was given to every man in the 15th New York. We carried on our flag today.
3: The 369th Infantry Regiment returned to New York City. On February 12th, 1919, although many of the men still had to stay behind in France. February
4: 12th. Mm-hmm.
3: Which brings us back to that victory parade that we talked about at the beginning of the show. The 15th Regiment, or the 369th as they now were known when they came home, had come home heroes and they were ready to march up Fifth Avenue on the morning of Monday, February 17th, 1919. So five days after getting home.
2: What's interesting is even though there had been armistice, the the war was just winding down and most of the American troops were still in France. So these men were among the first to come back from war, to return from war.
3: That's right. And you see that, you know, if you look at Not just the article that I read at the beginning of the show, you know, in the Times, but actually the other articles. Check out the other articles that are on the the front page with it. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm going to pull up another article here from the New York Tribune on Tuesday, February 18th, the day after the parade. They put the story of the um, parade on the front page and they even had an included special section with photos inside, which Mm -hmm. is really fantastic. The main headline was actually about a new truce that had been signed. The headline was U.S. soon to quit Russia. Preliminary steps taken to withdraw Allied and American troops. Soldiers expected to leave by spring. So most people were following that story. But at the top left of the page, we see the headline. Throng paid tribute to heroic 15th. Colonel Hayward and Negro warriors receive ovation in Fifth Avenue parade. Quote. Up the wide avenue they swung, their smiles outshone the golden sunlight. In every line, proud chests expanded beneath the medals valor had won. The impassioned cheering of the crowds massed along the way drowned the blaring cadence of their famed jazz band. And it goes on in great detail how they marched from 23rd Street where they passed under the specially constructed Victory Arch that stretched over 23rd and 5th Avenue all the way up to Harlem.
4: The most wonderful day of my life. The first outfit to march under that Victory Arch down there was on 23rd Street, 22nd Street. That's one day that it wasn't the slightest bit of prejudice in New York City. Terrific. Oh, we marched the Fifth then we had parties, we had, all oh, the feeling was terrific. Everybody was happy, everybody was wonderful. They had to the parade at the Army, and then the, over here in the Harrison Avenue Army in Brooklyn, they had a big dinner. It seemed that all these girls from the different churches and so forth volunteered their services. And I met one little girl there, who I married later. I stayed with her for 52 years. That's the picture you saw upstairs. And she's gone. She died in 72. But I met her at that reception coming home from France.
2: That man is so great. Going through his clips were, it was such pleasure to hear his voice. But what had actually changed back home here? Because it's 1919.
3: One thing literally that had changed was their name. Okay, mm, okay. Because they had left the fifteenth and they were coming back the three hundred and sixty ninth regiment. That may seem sort of superficial, but that also meant because they were now officially the three hundred and sixty ninth regiment of the National Guard. Among other things, that meant now that the armory board was required to construct an armory. Oh for them. okay. They left France heroes and they returned to the United States actually well celebrated by many here also feared by many, resented by others. In fact, that summer of 1919, just a couple months later, uh, is known as the Red Summer. It saw a dramatic increase in racial violence across the country. Between April and November of that year, there were more than two dozen race riots in cities across the country. There was an increase in the number of lynchings of African-Americans. More than 200 African-Americans were murdered in the United States, and that included veterans. And believe it or not, the racial segregation of the armed services would continue for decades.
2: Well, if there is one thing about this story that reverberates positively, it is the impact of Jim Europe and his marching band.
3: Yes, back to back to music. Jim Europe's three hundred sixty ninth Infantry Regiment Band. Uh, they had performed concerts around France, like you mentioned. They had spent weeks performing in Paris, and that new jazzy, raggy, syncopated sound caught on and was newly appreciated not just in France, but it would become appreciated all over Europe. And he would even he would record records for Pathé in France in nineteen nineteen. And of course, it would make it
2: more popular here in the United States as well. Oh,
3: after the war, they would tour the U.S. Yeah, under the baton of Jim Europe. You know, he'd perform concerts throughout the country. It was at one of his concerts in Boston's Mechanics Hall on May 9th, 1919, three months after returning home, the tragedy struck. At intermission, Jim approached two of the band's drummers with some feedback on their performance. And one of them, Herbert Wright, became extremely agitated perhaps he was mentally disturbed but he screamed at Jim and then attacked him with a penknife, cutting his neck at first Jim thought it was you know just a relatively minor cut after all he'd just been through a great war but James Europe died hours later at the hospital he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery he was 39 years old Whatever happened to Noble Sissel? Fortunately, Noble would enjoy a much longer life. After Jim was killed, Noble teamed up with his friend and a former collaborator and a composer named Yubi Blake. Now, together, they would create a musical called Shuffle Along, which we've talked about Mm -hmm. on various (laughs) Broadway-related podcasts. It had an all-black cast. It starred Josephine Baker it was a major hit, and is an influential piece of American theater history.
4: Oh, shuffle along, shuffle along, find life for the chance and when time comes to choose. If you lose, don't start singing the blues, but just shuffle along, play it, Mr. Blake, and whistle a song. Oh, sometimes a smile will right every wrong. Keep smiling and jump all along.
3: Sissel would continue his career as a musician. He even worked as a DJ in the 1950s, and he died in 1975 at the age of 86.
2: Now, you remember Mr. Horace Pippin? He actually became a painter officially in the 1920s to help strengthen his right arm, which he would never 100% get back its use. But with great effort, he actually became a really renowned painter of the 1930s and 40s, a painter of the Harlem Renaissance. He even made his national debut in a traveling exhibition in 1938 for the Museum of
3: Modern Art. And Pippin would die in 1946. Then, of course, there's Henry Johnson, the red cap from Albany, who came down to become a hero, fighting off the German troops single-handedly, when he came home, Johnson was famous. Okay, mm-hmm. everybody knew this story. He he toured the country as a paid lecturer, and he retold his story over and over. Although one night when he was lecturing in St. Louis, in the midst of you know all of the racial strife and tensions that we had talked mm-hmm. about, he decided to not sugarcoat anything. He told stories of the racism that the regiment had actually faced from white soldiers. Unfortunately, it seemed like people didn't really want to hear the truth. That wasn't the story they wanted to hear. Johnson would see his paid lecture engagements pretty much disappear. He would subsequently struggle with various health issues, and Johnson died in Washington, D.C. on July 1st, 1929. Henry Johnson's story would take a a happier turn in 2002 when he was very posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. And then 12 years later in 2014, Congress passed legislation to finally bestow the Medal of Honor upon Sergeant Henry Johnson. That was done the next year in a ceremony on June 2nd, 2015 by President Barack Obama. At the ceremony, Obama told Johnson's story.
1: Henry was one of the first Americans to reap France's highest award for valor. But his own nation didn't award him anything, not even the Purple Heart, though he had been wounded 21 times. Nothing for his b- bravery, though he had saved a fellow soldier at great risk to himself. His injuries left him crippled. He couldn't find work. His marriage fell apart, and in his early 30s, he passed away. Now, America can't change what happened to Henry Johnson. We can't change what happened to too many soldiers like him, who went uncelebrated because our nation judged them by the color of their skin, and not the content of their character. But we can do our best to make it right.
2: So, where today can we pay homage? To the Harlem Hellfighters
3: Well, if you're in France 169 members of the 369th Regiment Are buried in cemeteries in France Most of them are buried in the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery The Meuse-Argonne is is the largest American military cemetery in Europe It's the final resting place of more than 14,000 American military members There's also an obelisk monument that was erected in Seychelles, in northeastern France, where that horrific battle took place. It was erected in 1997. That granite obelisk stands in a garden between two flags, one American and one French. Now, what if I can't get out of town? Where can I pay tribute here in New York? Uh, There's another obelisk, a matching, a replica of the one that stands in France, It, too, was made in France and flown by the army to New York, where it was placed on a small triangle at Fifth Avenue and 142nd Street. That's an important spot up there at 142nd and Fifth Avenue because it faces the armory of the 369th Regiment. They finally, it's facing the armory, so they finally got an armory here. They did. The first section, which was a drill shed, opened in 1924. Um, but a much larger adjacent facility opened in 1933. That armory in 1985 became a New York City landmark. And today it houses community events and serves emergency purposes, but it's still home to the 369th, although they have, there have been some sort of structural reorganizations in the military. And so today it's officially called the 369th Sustainment Brigade. Which is part of uh, the 53rd Troop Command of the New York Army National Guard. But their nickname is still the Harlem Hellfighters.
2: For more information, for images, and even some videos, please head to our website, BarryboysHistory.com.
3: We also want to give a big thank you to Kevin Fitzpatrick, uh, the author of several books, including World War I New York. A Guide to the City's Enduring Ties to the Great War. Uh, His book was helpful, and he was helpful in explaining to us some of the differences between regiments and divisions. It can get very confusing. So thank you to Kevin, and it was a great pleasure to recently appear on Joanna and Kevin's Big Show, uh, which is Kevin Fitzpatrick's podcast along with Joanna Lieben. It was great fun to be on the show. It's because of your small monthly donations on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot slash Bowery Boys. It's because of your small monthly donations that we are able to dedicate all of our time, full time, to producing the Bowery Boys. Thank you so much. We have extra bonus audio for those who
2: support us on Patreon. We have our We have our Bowery Boys Movie Club, which we just released a new episode last week on the 1979 drama thriller, The Warriors. Come out and play. And then, of course, for those at the $5 level and up, we have The Takeout, which is our after show conversation. And so we're going to have a little bit more information on the Harlem Hellfighters, and we'll also be discussing the movie, 1917.
3: Which I hadn't seen until yesterday. So (laughs) you were still like in in the spirit
2: of that movie as you were recording this.
3: One single shot. Wait, is that a spoiler?
2: (laughs) I think people know that by now. Um, And we want to give a special shout out to patrons. Raymond C. and Patrick D. from Manhattan, Keith A. from Brooklyn, Michael S. and Matthew C. from Queens, Susan D. from Pennsylvania, Nicole S. from Ohio, Philip B. from Texas, and Ruth C. from California.
3: And hey, if you're in the city or visiting the city and looking for more ways to get your Bowery Boys on, you could run around town with a copy of our book, Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York, or you could join us in the streets on an official Bowery Boys walking tour. You can see all of the great walks that we have set up over at our website, BoweryBoysWalks.com. We work with the best tour guides in the city to craft walking tours around the podcasts that we do here on the Bowery Boys. We've got exciting things. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for listening.
2: Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.